Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the Daniel Hendrick Experience, the very first edition of 2024. I am super glad you're here, and I'm super glad that you get to hear this guest that we have on today. All the way from New York City, ladies and gentlemen, we have American soprano Marnie Breckenridge, who is a singer and actor known for her deeply expressive score interpretations, layered characterizations, and her lyrical pure soprano. Opera Magazine said that she is simply terrific. The Globe and Mail said, quote, she sings extraordinarily, bell-like ring over an enormous range and personality spilling from every note. Breckenridge's performance is organic and improvisatory. Wow. Not only is she an opera singer of great renown, but also she crosses over and does uh, Broadway-esque type works as well in operetta. So I am extremely excited for her to be here. She's award-winning artist and singer. So ladies and gentlemen, let's just get right to it in the new year. I'm super glad that Marnie is my very first guest of 2024. So let's bring in Marnie Breckenridge. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as advertised, the first guest of 2024 on the Daniel Hinduk Experience, the American superstar, Marnie Breckenridge, young lady. Thank you for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to finally meet you, Daniel. And thanks for inviting me to speak with you on your podcast. Well, thank you. So tell me, you are so interesting because really, I think you, after stalking you quite a bit on the, inter uh, on the internet, I think you are kind of the new breed of opera singer. Do you know what I mean by that? Wow. That is so cool. Um, I, I First of all, let me just say thank you because that is a very sweet compliment, <laughs> if you mean it as a compliment. <laughs> I do. I do. Well, you know, there's that whole like being compared to the golden age singers. And um, I think my career has been kind of much more into the modern opera world, which I have embraced fully. And it kind of fell in my lap in some ways. But then I realized, oh, yes, this is actually what I really I'm cut out to do and what I love. I love telling, you know, modern stories or non-archetype stories. Um, you know, really delving into the to the new parts of this art form, to the new parts of American opera. And uh I think I wonder, I wonder if you mean, you know, the new new type of singer is is that we have to embrace so many different styles and so many different uh, genres to keep the art form going forward. Is that what you mean? That's a very big part of it. So um, the next interview after you is going to be Mark Sampson, who is the head of the Berlin Opera Academy. I don't know if you know who that is. Mm -hmm. But he yep. said to me, so... Uh, you've interviewed all of these opera singers from around the world. What do you see that opera needs next to survive and to keep evolving? And of course, 
you know, I'm an opera singer myself. It's all, it's the voice has to be primary. And I said, well, the biggest thing for me is acting. That the reason, part of the reason uh, that opera is kind of dwindling at some levels in some areas is that it's not entertaining enough for the viewer. And what you're doing is the opposite of that. You're embracing the dramatic side along with the vocal side simultaneously. And for me, I think that's where opera has to kind of modulate towards more of that. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. I wonder too, and also because people are so caught up in, um, you know, Instagram and TikTok and these little sound bites, but it's also very visual. So you're looking at, and you can tell whether the person is telling the truth as that character, right? Um, I agree with you that it still is about the voice um, and making sure that you're lined up, you know, in a bel canto, technically sound way that you're singing on your breath, you know, and I will admit that there have been times that I've done a modern performance where I have gotten so much into the acting that the voice might've suffered a little bit. And then I've had to kind of, ooh, you know, take myself back to that middle meridian of, you know, the alignment and the breath and the vowel and just making sure I'm, I'm back, you know, in my, um, you know, bel canto training. And it's, uh, it's been interesting to kind of push and pull within that realm to, to be able to kind of um, stretch into something like I did this Peter Otvos piece at, at Glyndebourne that was love and other demons based on the Gabriel Garcia Marquez book, you know, and it was such a stretch. We were singing in Nurubin, like really, really high, <laughs> you know, very percussive uh, consonants and vowels, and then singing part of it, you know, and, and then in English and, and then in Spanish too, you know, so, but the character is kind of this strange, um, fragile and yet wild creature. She was like this woman, this little girl raised by wolves basically, and then rescued by this, the priest, you know? So, so she's having to kind of push into the character in so many different ways. I had to play kind of childlike and then strange. And, you know, so it was pushing my vocal ability. And I remember when I finally got to the lyric part, it kind of like oh, made me nervous. Like, oh, can I just now stand here and sing? <laughs> without wow. having to be crazy or having to be, you know, so into it, into the character that I didn't even care about the voice. And then when you have to care, you have to care. So um, going forward in opera, yes, we need characters. We need good actors because we want the people to believe what we are saying. We want them to be able to come into that focus with us and say, oh my gosh, you are the character. You are Maria or you are Lucia de Lamamore. You are that person. I hope that that's what we can all do um, going forward. And I hope that I've been able to bring that, you know, I am definitely Well, I've read your reviews. So. They talk about you doing that. Hmm. I try not to read reviews, but <laughs> <thank> <laughs> <you>. <laughs> not even the good ones, right? Because then you're just looking for compliments. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, what I'm talking about. It's kind of the Maria Callas vibe of singing, you know, where you balance both worlds and actually sometimes she was criticized that she got too emotional and lost her vocal line at times. But the other side of that was she was praised so highly for her portrayals of the different characters.
Right. And, and she's the name that everybody still talks about from that age. So she's really still considered one of the most famous, the most famous probably, you know, and then Pavarotti who maybe didn't act as much, but his voice is just, you know, one in a billion. What, you know, yeah. how could he do what he did? And he acted through the voice, his, his music, because I do believe we serve the music first, right. And then yes. the words and then the character. Right. But hopefully they can kind of be more equal now in these days, but he definitely served that music so beautifully. And yes. um, yeah, I think Maria Callas did too. Uh, she just, you know, she, she pushed the envelope. She bent the rules a little bit and that was exciting. I think people, and people wanted more of that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I hope I can serve it that way. I mean, I, I really love to do TV commercials and film and acting also. And I've always done that my whole career I've done that on the side or I've done a straight play without singing um singing I think is my true love I always sang in in church as a child my mom was the pianist and the organist at church and I was raised Seventh-day Adventist okay and something I'm, I'm also noticing it a lot of p opera singers you know come out of the liturgical family yes yes and you know, there's something so beautiful about a um, a hoch church or a high church with liturgy and music where you're singing hymns and then you do the Messiah every year. And, you know, there's something so deeply rooted in uh, my singing journey in, in that liturgical world. And I still sing in, in uh, churches when invited. And, and I love to, to, you know, dip into that side of my, my world. Um, but I think that that start was definitely the musical thing. But then with acting, I grew up in LA. And so my mom would take me to these commercial auditions and, and I did a few things, but things were always conflicting with uh, the Sabbath. So I kind of dwindled out of that and just concentrated on my schoolwork and, you know, did well in school and then went to college and uh, thought, Oh, I'll be pre-medicine like all the other good Adventist kids. Um, <laughs> And I found that it really wasn't my forte. It wasn't my, you know, um, easy, easy part of my brain. You know, I could do it. I, I did, did well in science in high school and then got to college. and I was like, oh, I'm having to study 10 times harder for these tests than ah, everybody else is. Right, right. And um, I know you, did, you didn't ask me this, but I know uh, you had said before when we talked earlier, you said, tell me about your journey. You know, you wanted me to kind of talk about how I became an opera singer. Exactly. Do you want me to go into that or do you want to ask the question? No, I, I love it when the interviewees ask the questions like that, too, because <laughs> that that just saves me time. And people hear from me all the time. We want to hear from you. So you go right ahead. Tell us your journey. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so, okay. So in college, I, I was pre-med for a hot minute. Um, I was also interested in art art. So I did an art history. I think I was one class shy of an art history minor, which was silly, but you know, college can be overwhelming. I was doing a lot and learning a lot. And uh, anyways, but art history always interested me. And then I, I loved music and I loved singing and I was in all of the choirs and would get solos and, you know, people would tell me you should be a singer. You know, I, you are a singer, you know, and I knew this about myself and my true childhood goal, goal was to be the next Barbara Streisand. I mean, I would sing I Barbara that. Streisand. 
What? I read that about you. I read that. Oh, I would line my little stuffed animals up and sing, you know, people who need people. (laughs) And I would like cry and, you know, just enjoy, enjoy the, the music coming through me, you know? Well, in a way, you've kind of followed the Barbara pattern because she was a singing actress as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. I yeah. love that. That is so so awesome. Uh, so years ago, I did a bohem, and I won't say what what country it was, but at the end of bohem, when she dies, I have this thing that it should look like Rodolfo really feels she's dead, instead of the typical fake cries of a tenor. Instead, he should really cry. And so I did that, and the director freaks out when he sees me do that in rehearsal. He said, oh, you can't do that. In this country, people are too proper, and that's not opera. And so I had to tone it down for him in the rehearsals, but I was young back then and a bit rebellious. So in the first performance, I did it, and um, the people went crazy in the audience over it. But afterwards, I paid the price for that because he said, that's the last time you'll ever work here. Oh, my goodness, because you didn't obey him. Because I didn't obey him. But for me, it was more than just about singing. It was really portraying that art, that character. And for me, it was as if he was asking me to not be true to the what the message was. Well, first of all, bravo to you for doing that, because people know the truth. Some people sit in the audience and they listen for perfect singing and they critique it, you know, fine. And they compare everything to, you know, they're comparing you to Pavarotti, whatever, fine. Right. But then there are people who go to the theater to be moved to... uncover something in their soul that needs uncovering that night that afternoon that go to seek out human connection Rodolfo I'm sad that Mimi died too and thank you for crying because I want to cry. I think every time I see Bohem personally, I cry. <laughs> it's just so moving. And the music, Puccini did that. You know, that all the rubati, all of the chords that he put together in such a genius, magnificent way makes us move. It touches those heartstrings. So good for you for taking it to the limit. I'm sure you still got the me out in a beautiful way. Well. When you get a chance, go to YouTube and look it up. There it is. I will. Singing that ending. I will. Wonderful. But But don't you... important. Yes. Don't you think in the powerful moments like that in opera that the audience and hopefully the performers can feel a sense of the presence of God? Yeah. That it transports you out of humanity and into a higher level of our humanity and some sort of divine connection, you know? Definitely. I call that the love energy. It's so deep and so wide and so all-encompassing. And music, there's something about those vibrations that, that tap into those parts of our physical 
realm, but then also our spiritual realm. And so, yes, um, yes, the love energy, God, the love of the universe, whatever you want to call it. Yes. Yes. And I, too, grew up in the church singing uh, like gospel music and stuff. And I had a lot of moments where I felt like I was transported out of myself and was experiencing yes. something divine. So then when I when I heard a famous tenor by the name of Mario Lanza when I was 15 or 16, I literally went out of my body and it was like, oh my gosh, I want to do that. I didn't even know what it was. Opera. So I went to my dad. I said, Dad, what's this stuff? And he said, well, that's opera, son. Tosca, Boheme, uh, Rigoletto, all of these things, which I had no idea how to even say those words back then. So since you're from L.A., I was raised in Fontana. No way. I have a cousin who lives there now. No way. That's wonderful. Yeah, so then I was born in L.A. and then we moved to Claremont, which is also down. You know, oh, my gosh. Yeah. 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 And then my parents moved to the Napa Valley, uh, St. Helena, um, in the early 90s. And so they've been there ever since. And so I call that home base, you know, even though I've lived all over the world and continue to do so. Gotcha. But that's wonderful. Yes. Looking Sorry. you up, I saw the St. Helena thing, so I'm like, where the heck is that? And I saw that it was a, an island, and I, I said, oh, oh <laughs> she's from an way. island. <laughs> no, oh, I'm sure I need to visit that St. Helena at some point. But uh, So that's interesting that you came from a, a church background, too, and I know Alan Held did. I listened to his uh, interview on your podcast. Alan Held, I just adore. He actually judged me in my first Met competition when I was just as green as green can be, because, you know, I really came to opera quite late, actually, um, mid twenties, because I, I didn't know much about it. I mean, my parents listened to a little bit of Leontine Price and a little bit of Pavarotti, but it was really church music for me. And I was in a Christian rock band um, at, from the end of high school into college. And I always sang, you know, I went to Pacific Union College, which is an Adventist college up in Anglin, Napa Valley, California. Um, and I always sang the solos, but we did classical music there as well. So I was interested in classical music, but I just didn't know, could I actually quote unquote be an opera singer? I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know anything about it. And I kind of just went into it blindly, but found my path within it. Um, and similar to your experience of hearing Mario Matlanza, I listened to a recording of Rosencavalier. And I believe it was Barbara Bonney as Sophie. Was it Elizabeth Schwarzkopf? Maybe not as Marshall. And anyways, I can't remember exactly because it was on somebody else's player. You know, and they played the trio, and I, I didn't understand what that was. I said, "How are they doing that with their voices? What is that?" And I remember telling my parents, "If there's a way that I can somehow do that someday, I will not have lived in vain." Like I knew that I was supposed to try to take my talent to that level. And, uh, you know, I think I've had moments of, of being there and I've had moments of major failure, but the journey of, of studying classical singing and of studying these characters and this polyphonic art form of gorgeous melodies and layers upon layers of, 
feeling and vibration that this music can create within us has been my spiritual journey. Mm. Truly. And also in, you know, meeting the people that I've met in this, in this career, opening my mind to other religions and other ways of life and other ways of thinking about God and goddess energy and other ways of thinking about music. And so it's funny how you start and then you come back to the beginning again, because I think I am now kind of experiencing more of that uh, marriage of, like you said at the beginning, you know, music and acting together. But for me, it truly is my spirit journey. Love that. I think we're from the same tribe, young lady. <laughs> right on. <laughs> so if we may pause just for a moment, I have a recording of you and I want to check to see if I can play it on the air before I do. And it's this. Sure, that's sure. That's one of the most recent things I've done. One thing about it, though, it is from the movie, and she's singing with pathos because she's dying. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we need to hear this young lady's work. So we're going to play this piece. Can you explain what what this is a little bit? Sure. This is um, from a recent movie I did uh, that Mr. Gordon Getty wrote both the libretto and the music for the movie version of the opera that he wrote, uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. So this is Kathy Chipping. She's married to uh, Mr. Chips, and she calls him Mr. Chips. <laughs> and she uh, is dying, and she's telling him to go on after she dies, uh, to marry again, to know that she will look out for him, on, his, on the rest of his life's journey. And she'll be there by his side. Chips, darling, it started. They'll kick you out soon. Doctor Cole says that things are a bit touchy. Our baby has decided to stretch out the wrong way, it seems. And doesn't want to bond Stubborn as a true chips Not to worry We always get it right in the end It will take more than a kink in the piping To stop a chips Much less to us But just in case, my darling Thank you. 
glasses back up your nose when they slide down, which is often, and you must teach the boys just as you have so that they will learn to teach themselves and teach the world, because now they are my boys too. And then one day, one wintry day at the end, when everyone is going Well, there we go, ladies and gentlemen, and you can find that and see it on her website, MarnieBreckenridge.com, right? Yes. <laughs> and then you can see the acting that goes behind that, too. That is exceptional. I love that you're doing these kind of pieces. And Thank I bet you. you have some new works coming up as well, right? Yes, actually. Uh, so in April, I'll be singing Lucia de l'Amour at uh, Orlando Opera on April 19 and 21, 2024. So I'm excited about that. I haven't sung Lucia for quite a few years, and it's wonderful to revisit that. I've done the role three times at different uh, houses here in the U.S., and I'm looking forward to 
bringing her some new life, you know, after having had two children and, um, you know, new, a new perspective on this character. I'm excited to, to bring her back. And then, um, another project I'm really, really excited about. So I helped, uh, develop a project about Jacqueline Dupre, the cellist, the famous cellist from the, you know, seventies, eighties, she died of, of MS at such a young age and hers was such a meteoric rise to fame. And then this tragic ending to her life. And she was married to Daniel Barenboin, um, Matt Heimovitz cellist. And I performed this duo drama that was written by wonderful, one of my absolutely favorite composers, Luna Pearl Wolf, and one of my absolutely favorite librettists, Royce Vavrick. And uh, we, collaborated on this they you know Luna wrote the music Royce wrote the words and Matt and I put our input in Matt had worked closely with Jacqueline Dupre and had actual quotes that he could provide you know um about the disease she called it this effing disease um anyways so it's uh about Jacqueline Dupre and we're going to be doing it at West Edge Opera in August um of this year and so I'm really excited about that and uh <laughs> to get to bring her story and it's written really beautifully and um, in a, almost like serialism, I guess you could call it, but it, it sounds so modern that it sounds like people would enjoy it. But it, my kids saw it twice in 2020 and they were quite young and they wanted to see it again and again. They just thought it was so interesting and not just because their mom was on stage, but the music is so fantastic. And we kind of weave in her life story, but then have these, uh, flashes backwards when she was a kid learning cello and then, you know, kind of her progress. And then, oh, it's hard to describe. You just have to come see it. It's And we're releasing it um, sometime this year. We recorded it at Skywalker, uh, was it last summer? So that'll be released. The record will be released uh, sometime this year, hopefully before our performances in August. How exciting is that? It's cool. It's a cool, cool, cool piece. And that's what I was talking about, folks, in the introduction before she came on, about her her ability to really take on different kinds of art forms within this operatic paradigm that we exist in. Kudos to you, kid. Man, <laughs> I love that about you. That is so wonderful. Because it takes a lot more bilateral brain activity to be doing acting, singing, and to be legit instead of just standing there singing like you're at Carnegie Hall in a concert. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Hopefully I, you know, do it justice. I sure enjoy it when I'm in the moment and I kind of lose myself. So hopefully that's, that's a good sign. <laughs> you know, early in my career, I lost my voice at a competition in Italy and it took I don't know, eight years to get it back. And oh. then I made my debut in New York. But uh, I had my mentor and teacher for a while was Giuseppe De Stefano, And wow. he was like the master of Tosca. So I knew that role so well. And I was singing Tosca with Pamela South. And at the very end, now I have my voice back and I'm singing. And I'm singing Elucev on the Stella talking about I'm not going to see her anymore and remembering her and the tears start rolling down my face 
and I'm crying on stage. And the reviews came out and they talked about what a great actor I was. Well, I wasn't crying because of Tosca. I was crying because I was so grateful to God that I even could be able to sing again. Oh, wow. And now when I listened to the recording, I was able to manage keeping the vocal there. But boy, was I a crybaby. <laughs> That's so wonderful. Just the gratitude. That's yeah, to be able to do that. Like you said, that there's a duality in that too, because you were the character and doing everything operatically that you had to do for the technical, you know, and, and orchestral uh, demands, you know, to project your voice. But then you were also so in it and so grateful as a human because you are a human. I mean, every every great actor, it's not it's not interesting to watch them play a character. It's much more interesting to see that person and their own elements come out than them pretending to be someone else. It's like, it's Daniel as the character, Marnie as the character, you know, that there's a duality in there that um, I think we have to look at and, and realize it's you playing that character. So grateful you for having your voice back. That just added another layer to your Cabarodossi. And I'm sure your audience felt that as well. Um, how wonderful. And I do think singing, can it does make you cry in a way because it's so deep inside our souls and inside our throats and inside this whole, you know, sternum and chest chakra, the heart chakra, right? It's all coming from that and your brain and your breath support you know uh it's all connected um yeah it's so well, i could tell I, you i could tell you have grown in your spirituality if you're talking about chakras now and opening the chakras and letting that energy flow through you you know that's uh it's scary though it takes courage to let the energy flow through your chakras because there are so many people that want to judge or hurt you or, you know, and yes. I think I wasted a few years um, with some, some anxiety about auditioning uh, because I was so attuned to other people's judgment of me. And I've yes. been that way a lot of years. And I think for a few years in New York, if so I was auditioning, I would just be a total wreck, just an yes. anxiety ridden wreck. And it's because I was so concentrated on the judgment part, what they would think instead of standing there, like your Kabarodosi did that day and just let it be my own experience. Yeah. Yes. And that letting it flow through me and letting, you know, um, I think also growing up, you know, my mom's dad was a, as it was a traveling missionary that she grew up in Costa Rica. There's this deep, commitment to service in our family mm, and excellent. i taught taught voice lessons at the san francisco conservatory for two years which was wonderful um and i i would i would teach for free like i love just giving back i i want i i mentor Me a too. couple young women right now and you know just for free we just talk and i just give them advice and it and it's just my two cents from my own little keyhole of experience in life Mm -hmm. but hopefully rooted in, you know, goodness and, and kindness and wanting them to do better in their life. And one thing that I wish somebody had told me was to be a little bit more, I don't know if the word selfish or if it's just 
um, confident, protective? protective, but I, I was protective, but I did it to the point of like knowing that they were judging me. So I let it get to me and I, I got nervous and I crumbled instead of mm. coming from a place of, you know, confide, true confidence. Confide means with faith that you will be okay just as you are, you know, that you are enough as you are, you know? And I, that's what I try to teach other young women, you know, that are coming up in this crazy world of trying to figure out who they are as opera singers. So this judgment, which I got a strong aspect of being raised in a religion because yes. there's constant judgment going, right? This is right. That is wrong. You know, two sides, you know, good, bad, good, bad. And I was always trying to be the good girl. And until I just could unleash, and I'm not saying be the bad girl, but until I could unleash and just right. be human, I right. didn't truly understand the depths of my powers as an actor or as a singer or as a mother or as a human being or as a wife, you know, as a friend. Yes. So wow, that's funny. I think that that's something I've learned in my spirit journal journey, going back to the chakras and whatnot, being able to be brave enough to share those things. Yes. With an and not audience. be a prisoner to a belief system. Yes. That it releases you. You know, with my students, talk about the judgment thing. Uh, I'll have them do an exercise or sing an aria, whatever it is. And many of them say, oh, I screwed that up. That was terrible. So I always make them, before you say anything negative, I want to hear three or four things that you did right. Oh, I love that. And when you practice that, that you're always looking at what it is instead of what it isn't, and you practice that in your practice, then you develop a modality of processing emotionally that first you're looking for the good. Oh, and then I love you can that. take that on stage too. You're looking first, what did I do? Yeah, in, in my aria, if you listen to it, there's a note here or there that isn't perfect but listen to the overall scheme of what happened there. Wow, that was good. That was a that was a powerful human moment that could help lift us to higher levels. It's always easy to say what's screwed up about something. Nobody's perfect. It's it's a harder thing for all of us collectively to agree look how good that is. Mm. And it sounds like that's what you're doing to your your proteges that you're teaching. Yeah. I love that, Daniel. That I I love that so much. And it's so important that we teach that going forward. I, I did have one teacher who said no a lot. And I was probably attracted to this teacher because there was a lot of judgment and perfectionism. And you need a certain level of perfectionism to be a technically great opera singer. But boy, let me tell you, did that mess me up for years and years and years because I would never feel ready enough, never feel perfect enough. And that no was so strong in my head. If it had been yes and, you know, but I, but through that, I learned I can't be the victim. I chose that teacher. I chose that, that whole 
judgmental. Yeah. Our studio is right and everyone else is wrong. You know, I chose that. And oh boy. It's <laughs> easy to kind of blame that on my conditioning and thinking within a religion too. We're right, they're wrong. And Adventism doesn't do that. They're very global and you know. Yes. Ad Adventism is wonderful uh, as far as it's it's a, a health message, you know, the blue yes. one of the blue zones of the world is Adventist, you know, lots of vegetarianism and you know Good healthful stuff. living, exercise, kindness, you know, bringing water to love, you know, yeah. people who have no water, lo love, you know. Um, <clears throat> the golden so, rule. In that, there's a judgment in any religion, right? In any perfectionism, in any wanting to be right, there's a judgment. And that has been something that I've been trying to let go of for the last 20 years. Yep. And, uh, it's still a struggle for me because I tend to try to be perfectionistic and then I'll beat up on myself because oh, I didn't get it quite right, you know, and, uh, well, that's an interesting point because you're never going to achieve absolute perfection of vocal technique or whatever, but what you can is achieve perfection in the approach. <laughs> Meaning yeah. that you're going to do the same thing over and over and over again. And yeah. no matter what happens, it has to be okay. So yes. then when I, when a student does a note and, and I could see their eyebrows, they go like this, they're <laughs> tight, they look like the Grinch. And I'm like, what <laughs> good does that do you? What benefit does that emotion on that note do you? Instead, let's look at it like a science experiment. Well, that was interesting. <laughs> We're not denying that it existed, but what good can come out of that thing that happened? But if emotionally you cringe in each side, each time you make a bad note or sing a bad phrase, then your subconscious is gonna work against you and not let you be free to screw up. Because in the screwing up process, I believe, that's when you can continue to strive to get out of the box to be greater, 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 because yes. you're not limited by your fear of making a mistake. I love that so much. Yes, and <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and uh, that's uh, that's wonderful that you're 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 giving that to your students and uh, yes. and myself and yourself. It is a gift to yes. yourself, right? Yeah, and I do it. Li I still sing live, and I play the piano, which, by the way, I just had surgery two, oh three days ago, carpal tunnel syndrome. Oh, you can see the bruising here a little bit, but so my hands are a little bit different. But I play and sing, and there are moments. I mean, now I'm a senior citizen. I'm 65. So, but there are moments <laughs> when I'll sing a note, and a little part of me says, start to say that sucks. But I've done it for so long that a bigger part of me just laughs and says, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Good for you. What, no what way. <laughs> and there are certain singers from a country that I won't talk about that have this very strict, rigid way, almost like hit you with a ruler when you screw up. And... When they come to me, I'm like, that just doesn't work with the psychology of most people. It's too rigid, and you're not yeah. free. Yeah. And, and th then the big wobble starts to come in the voice because it's so forced. Height and forced. Well, I feel like people don't give themselves enough permission to be the captain of their own ship. 
they give it away to the teacher or to the coach or the, and that was my problem for many years. And, and I finally realized, boy, I am not getting anywhere by this tightness or trying to be perfect. It's just not working. And so a lot of the modern music actually set me free because I had to just be such the actor. And a lot of modern music is technically difficult, like not easy. It's not, you know, straightforward and we're we're switching time signatures, every other measure. And, and, you know, the enharmonics are crazy and the, you know, just the way the music is written is not your, your traditional, uh, you know, way of writing. You yes. know what I'm trying to say, I'll start losing it a little bit, <laughs> you know, we can cut yes. that out, <laughs> cut out my mumblings, but you know what I'm saying? So it's, <laughs> a lot it. of modern music is written in very intricate, difficult, new thought ways of singing and, and uh, projecting music. Right. So, that is uh, something that sh- shook me out of my traditional perfectionism. It's mm-hmm. like, you've got to figure out a way to sing this crazy chord structure here. Right. And it may not be perfect the first few times. And then you get it into your body and you go, oh, okay, I see how I'm using the, the bel canto technique, but I have this new thought about how this this note sounds because it's it's like a new thought of dimension because these are new thoughts that are being per- it's not about consumption and yeah you know the woman yes. getting taken advantage of the man now it might be a, a different thing that we're telling a story of that we're yeah. uncovering you know some some new truth that we that the musician the well, composer is trying to put into the universe and the neuroscience thing of of that what you're talking about you are accessing a different part of your brain when that new thought comes in so there i can't tell you how many times singers have come to me and frequently it's this i can't sing the high note and in my mind and my emotions i'm just giggling inside because it's just so obviously untrue it isn't that the, their voice can't do it. They can't do it because of that box that they have put themselves in. Yeah. So I'll frequently do something like this and see what, what you think about it. Instead of doing na, 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 or whatever the scale is, yeah. I want you to sing like a fire truck. What does a fire truck sound like? Oh, I love that. And we start doing fire trucks. And then all of a sudden, they're going three or four notes higher than what they thought they could sing. And then I'm like, okay, now we're going to sing La Hospe, La Boheme, uh, Que Jolie de Manina. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to sing it. We're going to do it as a fire truck. And then the voice just that. goes because they're not singing. And we develop these paradigms and consciousnesses of what yes. singing is that actually limit us instead of free us. Yes. Does that sound too I, crazy? Not at all. I think that's actually how I learned how to sing for for once and for all. I mean, I knew how to sing. I was a natural talent. Like they were putting me up on the stage at five years old in my little patent leather Mary Jane singing Jesus Loves Me. And me I knew <laughs> You know, I knew innately how to sing. It wasn't until I started voice lessons that I questioned whether or not I could sing. 
Exactly. All right. So that siren technique, um, wonderful Sherry Greenewald at San Francisco Opera in the Marilla program, she helped me just siren it out. She's like, you know how to sing, girl. Like, why are you getting so choked up? You know, so, you know, and then I think we do seek out our mentors. We seek out people, you know, who yeah. help us. And even that wonderful voice teacher who said no a lot. I adore her that person to this day just amazing yeah. teacher taught me so much and and that's what i mean about us being the captain of our own ship you have to go back to okay i can siren like a, a five-year-old playing with my siren truck my fire truck and i know what singing is and so you have to use all of these tools and i always tell my students or you know even a friend who's having a hard time in that moment like how do i get up to that last that you were just talking about siren it do it opposite you know sing it lower sing yes it backwards you know exactly all of these to trick our brains into that new neural pathway of saying i do know how to sing and singing is just is i uh, one of my other friends says it's not brain surgery <laughs> it's just singing but it's brain activity. <laughs> it's brain activity. So the more you can, you know, let it be from this natural place. Yes. And that's, you know, acting as the character or just coming from a place of gratefulness and crying through it. Or just one day saying, okay, now today I'm only going to sing it from the mask. How does that feel? Okay, now today I'm going to only sing it from the mask with total body connection in my breast support. And now today I'm going to try it kind of more guttural and in my throat. How does that feel? Okay, that doesn't feel so good. Let's try this other thing. You know, so it's almost like working out the kinks um, right. to embrace what feels good. And then and the more you embody it, the more you do it, the, a way that feels good, the more that your body goes, oh yeah, that's how we do it. So essentially, if I'm reading you right, we have to be our own teachers. Yeah. It's like I tell my students, I am not your teacher. I'm your guide. You're the one that's going to teach yourself every day when you're doing yeah. the stuff I'm showing you. Yeah. So I'm just giving you ideas, showing you healthy practices. But ultimately, you if you don't take that responsibility on yourself, you're going to be limited to your perception of what I'm saying. Yes. You have to test it. You have to find out what works and what doesn't work. Yes. Absolutely. Well, my friend. You are absolutely amazing. What a pleasure. I'm glad we got through all of the technical issues we had this morning. <laughs> and to Thank hear you. your story, powerful. Not only is your, your singing, your acting powerful, but your consciousness is very powerful as I'm sitting here listening to you articulate your belief system. So I think you're living a life of freedom. Huh. Thank you. I'm trying, you know, I'm, I am grateful to be alive. And in this time period, and, you know, in this country with, you know, all of its faults, I mean, I really don't think I would want to be anywhere else. Uh, you know, as a, a woman, um, and an opera singer and a mom. Um, so I'm grateful. And I'm grateful for the platform of artist and musician. I hope I can help others to have a beautiful experience in the theater. And I hope I can also help people to find their spirit journey and their musical journey faster. If, if that's the word, maybe it's not faster, but maybe it's just 
find freedom at whatever stage you're at so that you can enjoy that moment in the now even more. <laughs> I hope that for my children and for everyone. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there it is, this amazing soprano, Marnie Breckenridge. Thank you so much for being on the show today. You are absolutely adorable, talented. What else can I say? What other expletives can I use to <laughs> Crazy. say how awesome you are? Thank you, my friend, for being here. Thank you so much, Daniel. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for giving me this opportunity and, and for seeing me the way you saw me. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, um, if I could just leave one quote that Emily Dickinson's uh, poem, I shall not live in vain. If I can help one fainting Robin and to his nest again, I shall not live in vain. That I think is my mantra for 2024 and beyond beautiful so hopefully we've helped somebody today by having this yes. conversation and new insight or <laughs> whatever but it was absolutely wonderful. so ladies and gentlemen check her out www.marniebreckenridge.com and there's some incredible website by the way bravo for Thank that you. and um Folks, for those that you, of you that want to know more about me and my journey of being an opera singer and losing my voice and coming back, you can find my book at danielhendrick.com and it chronicles all that stuff. And you can see all of the previous season one podcasts there as well. So thanks so much for being with Marnie and I today. And for those of you who have not subscribed yet to the podcast, Please do. It's only $3 a month, and it really helps bring these fascinating, interesting interviews with superstars like Marnie. So until next time, God bless all of you. Happy New Year. See you next time. Take a breath.